Thank you. Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Jonathan. I'm the executive pastor here, and I want to welcome you, but I loved how Jeff welcomed us this morning. I don't know if you noticed this. He didn't welcome you to church. He welcomed you as the church, and that's such an important distinction that uh, church is not this thing that we do on Sunday, but we are the church. And this thing that we do on Sunday is we kind of gather together to remind ourselves of what's most important so that we can carry that out into real life. And I love to just start with that reminder every day. I need this reminder that the truest and the most important thing about you, something that will never change no matter what happens in your life, is you were created in the image of God and you're deeply loved by God. And I forget that all the time. And just to gather together and remind each other of those important truths is so uh, vital to life. So I'm really glad that you're here with us. And I'm really glad that this guy is here with us. I'm so excited about this. This is Mark Wendell. Um, yeah, woo, you got Yikes. some woos. Um, Mark is our student ministries pastor. Um, and I, I wanted to introduce him, just a word of introduction here. I, I was thinking about how, like, how do I capture who this guy is? Hard to big, do. That's a pretty big net. Yeah, it's hard to do. But uh, this is what I thought. I have three sons, um, and uh, they're 17, 13, and 12. And they're all involved in student ministries here. And so for the last couple of years, this guy has been their pastor. Um, I cannot tell you how much my sons love and admire and respect this man and the role that he has in their life. And if that was all I ever knew about him, that would be enough, Right. But I also get to work with him, and uh, I get it. I, I love and respect and admire this man, and I've thought so many times over the last couple of years, Mark is a true gift to us at this church. Uh, I'm so glad he's here. He's going to help me preach. Let's welcome, welcome him up. Yeah. We could probably just go now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me pray. Why not end no. on a high note? Uh, good morning to you. What a wonderful uh, privilege it is to be here with you this morning. Uh, it is a wonderful opportunity to journey with students here at Pulpit Rock Church. Some of you are probably looking at the platform this morning and going, what is about to happen? I've asked myself the same things this week. But you all have great kids. Thank you for being such diligent parents. And I thought it was kind of a cool picture. Carter came walking in and kind of stood there next to Jonathan, which he's even more of a man than I am currently right. in the 12th grade. But that's kind of the role here, isn't it? You have these beautiful families, the Cleveland family, and all I get to do, what a gift to get to run alongside these families and journey with these students on a full-time basis. I love, I love what I do here. Thank you for the welcome. Gracious, pretty, pretty much unnecessary and probably pretty inflated. But today is really going to be fun. We'll try some different things together today. But thank you uh, for having a student ministries involved uh, from the platform today. I love Jonathan. I tell you, his leadership and mentoring in my life has meant a lot. So the chance to share a platform with him today is really a true gift. Thank you for the chance to, we'll give this a crack and see how it goes today. We're in a series called Grace People, talking about the idea that we serve the only God. And he's the God, he's the God of grace. But myself and my life, as I crawl and scratch and fight to be like him, I have to, in my life daily, find ways to be a person or a people of grace. As a church body for some time now, we've had kept before us the idea that in most of our relationships, it's not love that we're missing. The missing ingredient in most of our relationships is grace, which sounds weird, I know. 
What makes relationships thrive is the ability to give people something other than what they deserve. And it seems to me if there was anywhere that that grace could and should be found, it would be among the people, us, a people of grace. So we're learning together to become people of grace. Last week, I hit you with a quote that like just really left me undone and just, wow, rocked me. I, I want to hit you with another one. Maybe not as dramatic as last week's, but uh, uh, if you all know the author, Bob Goff, he's a lawyer and an author, and he wrote a book called Everyone Always. And the basic premise of the book is wrestling with this question, as followers of Jesus, who is it that we should love? And I don't want to give anything away, but it, the answer is everyone always. I mean, it's right in the title. So sorry, I should have said spoiler alert. Um, But anyway, um, so that's pretty challenging, challenging kind of calling that we have on our lives as believers. But in his book, he he writes this sentence, and it was one of those that kind of, oh, just made me pause. He says, it doesn't matter what our faith looks like. It matters what it is. It doesn't matter what our faith looks like. It matters what it is. So what that means is this, if everyone in your life looks at you and say, says, wow, what a spiritual person. I mean, gosh, you're so spiritual. They're like, if you look in the mirror and you're like, wow, I, I really am incredibly spiritual as a person. None of that matters. That's not what God looks at. That what matters and what God looks at is not how we appear to be, but he looks at the actual state of our hearts, not the appearance And it doesn't matter what our faith looks like, it matters what it actually is. Let me use a metaphor to kind of bring this home to you. Growing up, basketball was my sport. That was what I played. That was what I devoted all my time to. Um, And I probably, over the course of my life, have played hundreds, maybe thousands of what are called pickup basketball games. If you don't know what a pickup basketball game is, it's just you show up to the park, you show up to the, the gym or wherever it is, and it's 10 guys who don't know each other, and they just say, hey, let's divide up teams and we'll play right? So there's no like practice ahead of time, but you're just jumping in and you're playing together and trying to play a game. Now with guys, uh, this is a fascinating social experiment, especially with basketball players, because basketball players are are divas, like total divas. Um, All of them. It's true. If you're a basketball player, I'm sorry, I am one too. There's a lot of this posturing that goes on when you're playing pickup basketball with guys who don't know each other. So you show up and there's the guys who like they can talk a big game and like, like they sound like they really know what they're doing. You show up and there's the guys who like they have all the gear. I mean, guys will show up to the court with like, no exaggeration, $400 worth of gear on. They are like ready to play, pick up basketball. You have guys even like you, you shoot around before the game and guys are warming up and they look like they can play. You know, they're going between the legs. They're shooting threes. They're, some guys are dunking, you know, and you're like, wow, th- those guys really look like they're going to play. Then the game starts. What do you instantly find out when the game starts? you instantly find out the difference between guys who look like they could play and guys who actually know how they could play. And one of the great things about it, especially as I got older playing basketball, is sometimes it is like that old dude with the short shorts and the socks pulled up. (laughs) He's the best guy on the court, you know, but he's not posturing. He's not doing all of that stuff. When the game is happening, doesn't matter how you talk, doesn't matter what you're wearing. It doesn't matter how good you looked in warm-ups. There was no defense in warm-ups. What matters is can you actually play the game? I spent time over the last several years serving as a referee in a children's developmental basketball league. Let me repeat. <laughs> a children's developmental 
Basketball League. It's called Buddy Basketball, and it is hilarious. <laughs> These children, ages 5 through 12 or so, gather on Saturday mornings in February to play games. Nowhere have I seen more importance of and lack thereof fundamentals. What would you expect? They're just beginning. So for an hour or so on Saturdays, I basically blow a whistle nonstop. And here's things that I have to say <laughs> to buddies playing basketball. You can't do that. Stop staring at the basketball. It's round. It will come back up to you. <laughs> Get off of each other. <laughs> and sometimes we just blow the whistle to take a break and have a good laugh at what has quickly morphed into a rugby game for children with no muscle control. <laughs> but it's about the basics, dribble, pass, shoot, rebound, box out, get off of each other. <laughs> Maybe not such a tough transition to a lesson in our spiritual journeys, it's about the basics. Yeah, I'm sure you see where we're going here. Uh, this is how faith is for us. This is what Bob Goff is saying, is there are aspects of the faith that cannot be faked. There are aspects of the faith that can be faked. You can have all the knowledge, you can do all the activities, you can do all the spiritual stuff you're supposed to do. But at the end of the day, none of that stuff really matters because there are some basics, there are some fundamentals, there are the things that you cannot fake, and those basics will tell the tale of our faith. It doesn't matter what our faith looks like, it matters what it is. I have a friend named Demonte, and Demonte is seven years old. He's one of the neighborhood kids that we have the unspeakable honor to work with once a week at Mitchell High School during what we call Thursday Survey. This is a weekly mission opportunity for our students here at Pulpit Rock. My friend's name is DeMonte. Again, a weekly mission opportunity for our students. This is a weekly opportunity for us, to, as Jonathan talked about, to dress the park. This is a chance for us to warm up. This is a chance for us to walk the walk and maybe talk the talk. But what does our faith really, really look like DeMonte's a test of that. After all, Pulper Rock Student Ministry, we're on mission. But DeMonte is the test of it doesn't matter what our faith looks like, but it matters what it is. DeMonte, when I first met him, regularly would just run up to me without warning at Mitchell High School, high school in the grass and kick me, jump up, and punch me right in the chest. <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but this is DeMonte's world. Physicality, almost violence, that's the world that DeMonte knows. It's physicality, almost violence, whether he knows you or not, whether your skin color is the same as his or not, whether your regular uh, word usage is R-rated like his or not. But what would my faith be if in that moment, and in many, many, many moments to come, it weren't about the basics, it's about grace? Not giving DeMonte what he might have deserved. Extending grace, striving to be people of grace. DeMonte, this summer, was the only child then, several years later, who ran up to us and said, Mr. Mark, this is the third summer you've been coming to hang out with us. Myself and DeMonte both are beneficiaries of God's grace. And one of the questions that we've got to meditate on is what are those aspects of our faith that really have that defining and revealing quality? Hmm. You know, this is why we step out into the world to try to love people, uh, is because there is a defining aspect to that. There, there is something about that that we cannot fake. 
Uh, you know, I think if we took that sort of a question to Jesus, what are those things in faith that we cannot fake? I think it, top of the list for him would be love. Um, obviously, uh, something he talked about a lot. Top of the list would be love, but I think not just any sort of love, not just loving the people that we love, uh, not just loving the people who love us, mm. but I think a specific sort of love that has to do with what happens when we encounter the demontes of the world. It's a grace-filled love. It's a love where we do not give people what they deserve. We give them more than what they deserve. That's something that you can't fake. And I think that's the question that he would ask us, that revealing quality of how do we love people who are hard to love? How do we love people we don't like? That's what reveals what our faith actually is. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I'm not sure there is a more inconvenient passage of Scripture than that one. And you thought that you were spiritual <laughs> till you read that. But here's a thought to soak on for a moment. The depth of our faith can be evaluated by, the pe by how we love people we don't like. DeMonte. I didn't like him when I first met him, and why would I? I don't like to be cussed out and beat up by little kids. <laughs> but God absolutely changed my mind. More importantly, he's changing my heart. Loving people you don't like and having grace with them is only ever accomplished by an act of God on the human heart. This is how we prove who we are. This is the real apologetic. There's no greater evidence that demands a verdict than showing grace to difficult people. You know, that, that passage of Scripture is super inconvenient. What I like to do is look at it and be like, well, you know, I'm a pretty nice guy. I don't have many enemies, Jesus, so I'm good. Unfortunately, the word Jesus uses here for enemy um, is a pretty broad word, and it really just means people who elicit in us anger. It, it's people who bother us, people who frustrate us, difficult people, people who have hurt us, people that we don't like. That's what it is, and it's how we treat those people that reveals the nature of our heart. And so if we really want to be grace people, if that really is our identity, we are people of a God of grace, and we want to step into embodying that grace for the world around us, this question of how do we love and have grace for people that we struggle with is the most relevant question. That's what we're going to dive into today. During the summertime for high school, we host what we call Greenhouse on Wednesday nights. And we did a study out of John chapter 4 recently, and I cannot escape it. If you could make your way with us, would you join us in John 4? We're just going to tear apart a few verses here together and talk about, look at an instance where the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, spent time with a difficult person. I thought we'd hop on in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The message in verse 9 says that a Jew would not be caught dead with a Samaritan. 
Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from himself? as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And then jump forward real quick. Let's finish up at 25, 26. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is a great example, a great account of two people who should have been together. Jew and Samaritan, man and woman. But Jesus, in his infinitely divine timing, was at the well. Can you imagine the God of the universe is sitting at the well right then as she's making her way? And you're all going, yeah, I can imagine it. That's a classic Jesus thing to do. He's there to spend time with a person who, by all accounts, was probably a difficult person. She was traveling to the well. Who knows how far the well was from her home? We do know it was noon, so that means it was hot, and no one else was out. This was the heat of the day. This wasn't exactly prime time to be out doing something. Would you suppose with me for a moment, do you think this trip and the time she took the trip to the well was intentional? Do you think she chose to go to the well in the heat of the day because she knew no one would be out. No one would see her. No one would ask a difficult question. No one would whisper under their breath. No one would jeer or mock her. No one would call her names. Yet there then was the God of grace. And what was he about at the moment? He was sitting, he was patient, but he was also tired and he was worn and he was hungry and he was thirsty, wasn't he? All this is setting examples for us about what we could and should be doing. How often are we, great men, women, and young people of God, surrounded with people who in their life's journey are out in the middle of the day? In less than ideal conditions, so no one will see them, no one will ask them, no one will call them names or joke or mock or whisper under their breath. How many of them are in the light of day? How many of those folks are in the dark of night doing what they're doing so no one will see? Could we be people of grace who despite also being tired and worn and hungry and thirsty could be patient and just sit for a bit? We have no idea how long this interaction took. I say eight minutes. Just maybe eight minutes. Classic Jesus probably got it done faster than that, right? <laughs> But let's just say eight minutes. In that eight minutes, Christ showed us the way. Extend grace, no matter the lifestyle, the choices, the consequences, or number of husbands. Be people of grace. And oftentimes, isn't difficult really just different? 
her interaction with the Messiah left her changed. Christ didn't exclude the difficult or the different, and isn't that a good thing? Because we'd all be left out. Christ didn't put up barriers, and neither should we. I love going out to eat, obviously. <laughs> I love going to parties. I like to have a good time. But one of my favorite parts about going to parties and to restaurants is the goodie bag. It's the doggy bag you get to take home at the end. You get to eat on it or chew on something later. You know what I'm talking about here? Uh, Charlotte, bring me the We're going we're to talk about a goodie or a doggy bag real quick because we just try to, Jonathan, like, hey, how can we make this an, an applicable? How can we apply this? Molly, Kathleen, and I went to a wedding last Saturday in Espanol and todos. It was completely in Spanish. <laughs> that was an adventure. But the idea, the idea these amazing goodie bags you got when you left. Do you know what I'm talking about, a goodie bag? Here's kind of a mental goodie bag for you today. As you go this week, and we're not done yet, don't even think about getting up. As you go this week, here's a goodie bag to take with you. We want you to be challenged to look for Everywhere you go, everywhere you visit, places you go anyway, look for somebody difficult or different than you are. And take how long with them? Just try eight minutes. Jesus is giving grace in simple ways. We can too. I, I love that, Mark. I, I also, uh, I know normally talk to students. Uh, these people, they don't leave in the middle of the sermon. They're like, they're oh. here. They're usually, yeah. <laughs> That's great. It's cool. It's cool. for the whole, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I resonate with the fear, but usually they That's good. I mean, they're usually here. Some of them leave. No, I think we're good. Um, anyway, uh, I love that. And what I love about the eight-minute thing, I mean, you read through it, it takes like eight minutes. And what's so interesting about Jesus is sometimes he'll raise the bar on us, and sometimes he lowers the bar so low, I can hardly crawl under it, right? Everybody has eight minutes to give to someone who's difficult, to someone they don't like. It's very hard to talk myself out of that. Uh, what's, the, what's difficult about it is to have the motivation to give that eight minutes. It's not a question of do I have the time, it's a question of do I have the motivation to give that eight minutes. Um, I, I wanna talk about something Jesus said in Matthew 5. So if you turn back to that passage that we were looking at earlier, um, I think he gives us something that really is the motivation behind what Mark is talking about here. Uh, the whole love your enemies passage is in Matthew 5. Right before that, he says something that I think is really relevant. If you look at Matthew 5, verse 38, he says this, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to uh, sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let me talk about another inconvenient passage. I mean, that is just incredibly challenging. What's more challenging is we love to spin it into like a metaphor, but when you look at Jesus' life, this was not metaphorical. This was actually how he lived, especially the last few days of his life. Now, he does say something here that, that can be explosive and potentially taken out of context. So whenever we read this passage, just bear with me. I wanna just step out of the sermon for a second and just address one specific thing. Jesus is talking about a spiritual principle that leads to a specific sort of behavior, this whole turn the other cheek thing. He is not talking about every specific instance of violence that you may encounter in life. And he especially 
is not talking about abuse in an intimate relationship. That is not what he is talking about here. And I could show you this biblically. We don't have time. That's not what the sermon is about. So would you just trust me? If you are in a physically abusive relationship, the only thing to do is to leave. That is not unloving. It's not an unloving thing to leave. The reality of abuse is this. You cannot love an abuser out of their sin. And to stay in the relationship prolongs that sin, and it is a misapplication of this verse. And I only say that because I've heard people apply this verse in that way, and I feel, every time we read it, compelled to say, Jesus is not talking about abuse in intimate relationships. Can we realize that? If you're in that situation, talk to one of us as pastors. We would love to help. Tell someone, leave. Okay, um, let, let's move on from that. What we also need to realize about this passage is this. Jesus is not just addressing something that he made up here in his head. This whole eye for an eye thing and tooth for a tooth, that is a specific thing. It was a, a practice and a custom of the day, and it was something that actually occurs in the Bible. The phrase occurs three times in the Old Testament. And it was something that religious leaders had used to basically teach this idea of what, I, what I'll call like spiritual retaliation. And the idea was simply this, that if someone does something to you, it's like there are these giant scales, like the scales of justice. You've seen that, right? And if someone does something to you, it's as if the scales had become unbalanced. And it was commonly understood and commonly taught that the, the God's law permitted a person to take action to make the scales even again. Now, you couldn't go beyond that evenness because that would be sin, but you could do something to make those scales even again. So if hypo hypothetically, someone slaps you on the right cheek, Demonte, right? You know, you go to the priest and you say, hey, this, this kid slaps me on the right cheek. And the priest would say, well, this is what you can do to even the scales. It would not be a sin to return that slap with a slap of your own. It would simply be balancing of the scales. You just couldn't go beyond that. And that was commonly taught. Now, Jesus comes along and he says, listen, what I'm saying to you is do not orient your life around balancing those scales. Do not orient your life around balancing those scales. When you encounter someone who mistreats you, when they're difficult, when they're unkind to you, do not give them what they deserve. In fact, allow the scales to stay uneven and give them more than what they deserve. Give them extra. Let go of that impulse to even the scales. You know, what, what he's inviting us to, I think, is so different than what is normal and what is natural for us. I mean, it, he is inviting us to something that truly, I think, is inhuman, that it is divine. It is something like nothing else on all the earth. He is inviting us to take those scales that we all have in our head and to set them down. You know, here's the reality that we all live in. I know this. I live in it too. There are about seven and a half billion people on the earth. Seven and a half billion people on this planet. Uh, some of them are really hard to love. I haven't done a survey or anything. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the majority of them are really hard to love. I mean, at least 51% of them are really hard to love. And they're going to do wrong stuff all the time. They're going to sin. They're going to hurt you. They're going to reject you. They will inconvenience you. And they just generally will make it really hard for you to want to love them. And what's true of like all seven and a half billion of us 
It's true of you, it's true of me, is we all have these scales in our head. We're all keeping track of who it is that offends us, who it is that mistreats us. You know, God designed us to be relational creatures and we're attuned to how, uh, how balanced is it in the relationship. We are attuned to those scales and we know when the scales get out of balance and we all want just even scales. I want even scales. That's what we all want. I know that's a little bit of a bleak picture of humanity, uh, but we live in that world. And Jesus says, listen, I lived in that world too. I walked that world. He says, I have been there. And, And his invitation is this. You could be one of the few out of seven and a half billion people. You could be one of the few that sets the scales down. It stops chasing this illusion of evenness. That evenness, it doesn't even ever give us the love that we want. It's just this illusion that we all chase. And he says, you could be one of the few whose life is characterized not by chasing some evenness, but by laying those scales down, by giving people better than what they deserve. And it is, I think, the highest possible calling we could have as humans, and that's probably why most of us don't actually step into that. Now, when he's talking about this, he, he hits us with this whole idea of not giving people what they deserve, turning the other cheek, of loving your enemies, and then he ends it with this phrase that we read at the beginning. Be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect, which that's just a hard thing to say, right? I mean, it sounds like what he's saying is, hey, and uh, don't ever make a mistake, because God never does. I actually don't think that's really the tone of what he's saying. I, I think what he's saying is this, is that there is this way of living that is so different, that is so inhuman, that is so counter to what all seven and a half billion people are doing, that when you see it in someone, you will marvel and say, wow, that's like perfection on earth. And you could step into that with your Heavenly Father. You know, I I think churches kind of have this bad habit of talking about spiritual maturity uh, as kind of this thing that's just way far out there. Like, hey, one day, you know, you'll get there with enough study and church attendance. You know, one day you'll become spiritually mature. And I think all of us... Like, none of us would say, I'm, if I said, who, who here thinks they're spiritually mature? None of us would raise our hands, because that would be arrogant, and that would be unspiritually mature. But it also, it's kind of hard to really know. Like, am I spiritually mature? Those are, are hard questions to wrestle with. I think Bob Goff's quote, it, it's, it's one that makes you wrestle. It doesn't matter what your faith looks like, it matters what it is. Well, how, how do I even know what my faith is? What Jesus is saying to us is, this is how you know. There is nothing more mature, there is nothing more perfect, there is no moment that you are more like God, there is no more defining or more revealing aspect of faith than this. Can you set down the scales? Can you stop chasing evenness? Grace for our enemies, grace for people that we don't like, that we find hard to love, is perfection, he says. Because it's so utterly inhuman, it is so utterly divine. And instead of Jesus putting spiritual maturity way down the road, one day with enough study, you'll get there. He says, you could be just like God right in this moment. 
you could embody what God is about right in this moment when you lay down those scales and love someone who's hard to love. When you encounter that difficult person and say, I'm going to give them eight minutes instead of giving them what they deserve. It doesn't get any more mature than that. The rest of it can be faked. But that sort of love is Christ-like. You know, I love uh, what Bob Goff says. I struggle with it. Um, this idea that what matters is what our faith is. Can, can we actually play the game? Are we actually embracing these fundamentals? Uh, I, I want us to just end wrestling with some fundamentals of faith questions. Let me ask you, with whom are you carrying around scales? With whom are you keeping track? Are you chasing this illusion of evenness that so many of us chase in relationships? Who is in that category of difficult to you? Is there someone in your life that their differences from you make you shy away from them? You know, I know what Jesus is inviting us to is not easy. There's a reason that uh, of the seven and a half billion, very few of us step into this but you could be one of those. You could be one of those in that relationship who is swimming upstream. You could be one of those people that lays down those scales, that gives it up and that gives that person what they don't deserve. You could give them your eight minutes to listen, to be kind, to lean into the difficulty. You know, out of his great love for you, Jesus is giving you this divine invitation this invitation to be like God and to love those that you don't like. Let's, let's respond as grace people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity for you to speak to us. Father, to show us uh, what it would be like in those moments to be like you, to be like your son. And Father, to listen to the Spirit. Father, we all know difficult people. Oftentimes we are those people. Father, would you show us uh, the moments to take the time and to listen and to talk. Father, your son took me eight minutes and he knew every piece of background information. Oh, we will not have that luxury. Would you show us to take with people that are around us who are difficult and different? Father, I want to be more like you. We as a church want to be more like you and we'll count on and love you in advance knowing uh, that you will help us. Father, today we, we venture to set the scales down Show us how to do that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you please stand with us as we respond?